0: Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 16, Revelation 16. We're going to study in this chapter three times. Last week, verses 1 to 7. This week, verses 8 to 16. And uh, the next time we return to it, 17 to the end of the chapter. We're pausing here because I think it provides particular encouragement for us in a chapter that can seem especially dark and overwhelming and frightening to us. One of the chapters, uh, exemplary chapter for why we often avoid the book of Revelation. It's just too scary, it's too threatening, it's too intimidating. But remember, This book is written to, remember chapters 1 to 3, the churches. It's written to the church. And it's written, as our own text tells us today, for blessing. How so? Let me remind you of of the series of sevens that we have been talking about. There are three of them. There were three Seven, three, uh, there were seven seals that the Lamb was to open, re- representing his sovereignty over history. And then there were seven trumpets that we studied in chapters 8 to 13 or so, and those seven trumpets were announcements of coming judgment. They were warnings, they were uh, the promises of. Partial judgment, warning of the unleashed judgment to come, the final judgment to come. And now in this chapter, we're looking at those seven, the final series of sevens, the seven bowls of God's wrath. And these are not partial judgments, these are final, these are complete, these are total, ultimate. I said there were three series of sevens. There is one more. It's a series of benedictions, seven blessings that are not lumped together as we find these, but they're, they're systemic, they're, they're scattered, they're paced out through the whole of the book. Seven benedictions, we study them here. And each one of them is intended to say to the church of Jesus Christ, yes, this is the judgment that is promised on those who refuse to bow the knee, who refuse to repent, but blessed are you who are in Christ. Blessed are you who are going to be on the winning side. So stay very close to him that you might finish well with him. With that in mind, we turn our attention to the next section of chapter 16, which begins in verse 8. If you're rebelling against Christ, then hear the threats. If Christ is your Savior and Lord, hear the comfort. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched. By the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds." The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole earth to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever." <clears throat> a few years ago when ISIS along with Al-Qaeda were making their way across North Africa and the Middle East in pursuit of a, of a radical uh, and, and violent caliphate, and about the same time was the the Arab Spring phenomenon, that phenomenon of th- th- those populist rebellions against totalitarian governments along the same area, North Africa and the Middle East. About that time, several years ago, when that was spreading, when that was so much in the news, I read the testimony of a man named Abu Karam. He's an Iraqi man, an Iraqi pastor who lived in Mosul, second largest city in Iraq, and ISIS was on their way. And uh, their targets were uh, anyone who opposed them, really, but especially Christians. And so he, like many others, was granted asylum. He was granted asylum in Canada, and he had taken that... uh, that temporary passport and, or that visa, and he had gone to Jordan with it on his way to freedom in the West. He was going to be able to live in security. He was going to be able to pursue gospel ministry without threat. But he got to Jordan, and Pastor Karam said he heard Jesus say to him, you must go back. You must go back to your home country, you must go back to Mosul because you have the truth of the gospel and if you don't preach it, how will they hear? And you must go back to Mosul and show the love of Christ, otherwise how will they ever be convinced of it? You have the gospel. You must go back. He did the unthinkable. He did what even other Christians said was, was crazy. He went back to Mosul and continued to pastor, to preach the truth of the gospel and show the love of Christ to those who were uh, fleeing for refuge as well as where he had opportunity to his enemies. He stayed there until ISIS did arrive, drove him out. He went, but he still didn't leave the country. He just went a little bit north and continued to do the same thing, continued to preach the truth, urge his fellow Christians, stay here, preach the truth, demonstrate the truth, demonstrate the love of Christ. One of his members said, we were only a nominal church before. We were a Christian church in name. Now we are being the church. He said in this article, Jesus says, it won't be easy to continue on in the faith. But Jesus also says, no matter what happens to you, I win. And if I win, you win too. You heard that before? Jesus wins. It's the story of this passage, and this passage tells us very specifically how we are going to win, how we will conquer the powers of darkness, and it's illustrated in the life of Pastor, Pastor Abu Karam, that we will defeat the powers of darkness with the weapon of truth, and we will defeat the weapons of darkness with the weapon of Love. Now, I know the outline has a lot more words in it, but I, got, I get simpler the closer I get to the pulpit. Truth and love. We will defeat the powers of darkness with truth and love. And they're specifically designed. They are heat-seeking missiles. They're hell-seeking missiles. Truth is opposed to the devil's weapon of propaganda. And love. Is opposed to the devil's weapon of power. Look at verses 8 through 11. Here is the promise or the implications of what it means to trust in the truth of God's word as. Philip James said so well in the children's message, this is our authority. And God promises that this authority will be vindicated above all falsehoods, against all propaganda. So we stand on this word alone. And here are the implications of that truth, that truth, that 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 promise that truth will be vindicated over the propaganda of the devil. The first implication is in verses 8 to, to 9 that there will be no bounds to God's judgment. We said earlier that that uh, those trumpets that announce judgment were only partial. There is a partial eclipse. Loc- uh, locusts and scorpions are promised, but they're only going to torture. They're not going to kill. A third of the citizens said oh, will be, be killed, uh, but uh, that, not the whole world. Of course, that's, that's all symbolic, and it's all symbolic of there will be warnings of judgment. God throughout history will warn humanity. Judgment is coming. Look at the fallen nature of things. Look at the, look at the disease, and look at evils being perpetrated. Look at the consequences of your sinful behavior. These are warnings to turn away, and there's now time to repent. But a day is coming at the final judgment when time will be elapsed. The time for repentance will be gone, and it won't be a total eclipse. It'll be a partial eclipse. It won't be a partial. It'll be a total eclipse that everyone who refuses to bow the knee to Christ, will suffer in hell eternally. That The, the judgment, judgment will be absolute. And today is the day of salvation. Today is another warning. You have no guarantee that you're going to live to the end of this day. You can't trust in your health. You can't trust in any other means of living, guaranteeing your next breath, the beating of your heart for another moment. And you will face your judge once and for all. Here is the warning. Today is the day of salvation. Come to him because the day is coming when there will be no bounds to his judgment. That the implication of God vindicating his truth born out in this this fact that there will be no bounds to his judgment shows that God hates lies. God hates falsehoods. God hates any attack on his word. Any who put himself puts himself or herself or any worldview against up against the authority of scripture, God hates it and his final hatred will be unleashed in absolute war against the enemies of the truth. Second implication we find disturbingly in this passage a couple of times, the end of verse 9, the end of verse 11 is <clears throat> that even in hell, rebels will refuse to repent. This is an indication of, 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 of uh, our insistence our addiction to, our commitment to self-justification. God says that even after He unleashes His wrath on the earth, after all of these millennia of giving warnings about the coming judgment, and even after judgment is totally unleashed, even in hell, He says, man's will, a human being's will is so... Bound to its rebellion against God, to self justification, that they will curse him while they're being punished in hell. Now you may say, tut tut, why would they be so foolish? A physician, heal thyself. We're each born this kind of rebel. All of us, like sheep, have turned astray. Every one of us, the Bible says, is dead in our trespasses and sins. It doesn't mean that we're physically unable to make choices. That's not what what the Bible teaches. It means we're morally unable to make the right choices. It means that we we are consciously unwilling to condemn ourselves and to admit that we need justification by Jesus Christ, that we need new hearts. And and we will persist in that self-justification. You know, it it is ultimately the explanation for every relational outage. When when one or both settle into and entrench themselves in self-justification, it is ultimately the problem The explanation for the breakup of a marriage when one or both entrench in self-justification. Now, there's a relational outage that's come to your mind. Maybe a marriage situation's come to your mind. And I guarantee you, here is the first thought that came to your mind, as it has to mine, I confess. Yes, I hope they're listening to this. I hope that person listens that they are self-justifying because I am justified. When standing openly before the throne of God's judgment, there may be a relativity in terms of responsibility for the outage, but no one stands before God as justified in and of themselves. No one is ever totally right. That is is bound into our wills. And the only way we're set free from it is for Christ to give us a new heart, to grant us repentance, and to keep granting us repentance throughout our Christian lives, to keep turning us. So, little children, don't give your hearts to Jesus, He doesn't want your heart. Instead, say, Jesus, give me a new heart. Give me a new heart because this one is hopeless. Take my heart of stone, give me a heart of flesh. That's the second implication of God's unleashing his wrath against all lies. It it demonstrates how entrenched we are in our self-justification. Then the third implication is There must be no fear in our witnessing. First implication, well, there's no bounds. There's no bounds to God's judgment. There's no repentance among people naturally. And thirdly, there is no, you should be, no fear of witnessing for Christ. If we know that God is going to vindicate the truth upon which we build our lives, then what does it matter if people call us fools or reject us when we share with them the truth of Christ or when we say to them, I'm not doing that because it's forbidden in God's Word or I am doing this because it's prescribed in God's Word. And they say, are you so foolish as to base your life on God's Word? And you're, you, you, you may be tempted to be embarrassed by that, but you must not be because here is the promise that God is absolutely going to vindicate that truth. Therefore, there should be no fear in witnessing. Don't don't, don't despair because because somebody's not accepting your witness right away because you know that the same thing must be done and can be done in them as has been done in you. God can take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Change their will. Don't be intimidated. You know you're on the winning side, that Christ's truth will will be vindicated. Don't think that someone outmatches you intellectually. Every thought is being brought captive by Jesus Christ. You don't have to have all the answers. Somebody can help you to show the answer in God's word. Don't worry that, uh, that the need outstretch, outstrips the, the, the supply. Step into the need and call in King Jesus. Don't fear in your witness. Be bold in it. Let them take away everything you have. Call you a fanatic. Accuse you of hate speech. Turn you out of their social circles. Because by being courageous and faithful in your witness, you will, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit will conquer some and draw them into the salvation and into your family And they'll thank you into eternity for it. Don't worry about how they'll accuse you. God will vindicate every truth. Well, there's our first weapon. It is the truth of God's Word, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that puts down, that stands against, will be ultimately vindicated against all the propaganda and lies of the evil one. But what about his power, the devil's power? Notice in verses uh, 12 to 16, he says that that this power is not merely intellectual. It's not merely human. It's demonic. It, it, It is repulsive like frogs. Remember the allusion to the book of Exodus? It's repulsive and it's powerful and it's everywhere and it seems to be gathering steam we can be we can become hopeless we are no match for the power of the devil the one roaming to and fro seeking whom he may devour throughout this earth but here is the promise In verse 15 here is the here is the blessing that god's God's love for us, yes, love as you love others in the name of Christ, that is powerful. But the emphasis in this, in this section of Scripture is not so much on the kind of love you and I must show to conquer evil. The emphasis here is on the power of God's love to protect us and propel us against the kingdom of darkness the power of God's love. God shows us, verses 12 to 16, again, this ultimate, this ultimate power over all, of his, all of all, over all of his enemies that will be absolutely displayed at the great day as he gathers all of his enemies into one place that he might judge them all at once. You see at the end of verse 16, there's this allusion to Armageddon. Now there is no literal place on the planet named Armageddon. There is a Valley of Megiddo. There's a uh, that you can uh, tour uh, when it's safe to do so in the Holy Land. There's a Megiddo, uh, Valley of Megiddo, and it is and it is alluded to here because it was. It's a land bridge joining north and south, east and west. Most every movement of the world, most every uh, army in battle has. Has, has traversed, have traversed that land bridge, joins the north and south hemispheres, joins us east and west. There's the valley of Megiddo. And Ar, Har, in, in Hebrew, is a is mountain. There is no mountain there. There's a molehill above Megiddo, but it's not a mountain. But it's representative. It can't be that literal place because it's not big enough to hold all of the bad people throughout all of the centuries. This is a symbol. It's like the Valley of Jehoshaphat as a symbol in, in Joel chapter 3. But w- the symbol is this. God is gathering all of His enemies into one place that He might destroy them all at once. They, on the other hand, think, you know, we're getting We're getting closer and closer to each other. We're becoming more united. We're beginning to see things all the same way. But the way they see it, the way all of the enemies of God see things, will see things by the judgment day is we're against the Lamb. We're against the Lamb and all of His followers. Now, who is behind all of these movements, this this gradual consensus that is building that the lamb is the enemy and any who follow him. Behind it are three figures, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now, we know who these are. We've already identified the dragon in chapter 12. He's the devil. Who is the beast? We've identified him in chapter 13. That is the Antichrist, a worldwide worldview basically that says... Man is God, God is not. And third, the false prophets are those, we learned in chapter 13, are the messengers of that worldview. The messenger of any worldview who says, the Lamb of God is the enemy and all who follow Him. And not only, therefore, does God promise absolute judgment, on all of those worldviews and those powers that are opposed to the Lamb and His followers, but on the devil and the Antichrist and His messengers as well. The devil is being allowed right now. The Lord, as Luther used to say, the devil is God's devil. The devil is being allowed by God to gather into one one consensus worldviews, institutions, governments that say the Lamb and His followers are the problem and the enemy. And we sense it, don't we? We can sense it in our own nation. We can sense it increasingly as it is true that no Christian, for instance, no true Christ follower can be wholly devoted to any one political party. It is not that uh, any political party has become more and more Christian, but rather that Christians have more and more compromised the essentials of the ethics of Scripture in order to find a way to be defenders of their political ideology or party. The only way, and it will be increasingly clear, that the only way to be a consistent follower of Jesus Christ is to be viewed as an enemy of every political party. It will will more and more cost us to stand for Christ because the truth of Christ cuts against Every ideology not ra- uh, based in Scripture. Now, you know, like yesterday I counted up something. I like to count things. I never remember what I count, but I count things. And I, I, I counted up that I've lived through, as a pastor, just as a pastor, because I didn't want to reveal how old I am. And just as a pastor, I've lived through 18 congressional elections. I've lived through eight presidential elections and five or six senatorial elections and a nauseatingly profuse number of local elections. I am not saying, please don't hear me say that getting involved in politics is an ungodly. We must have those who get involved in politics recognizing it's going to be a life of suffering to stand for Christ. That is a noble thing to be involved in. What I'm saying is we can't attach our hope to, to political activism, to, political, to politicians. Only Christ changes hearts. Only Christ conquers truth. Only Christ heals marriages and sets people free. But I was reflecting on these, these elections and I, and I just did a survey of the slogans that I have heard in the eight elections I have endured. 1992, putting people first. 1996, building a bridge to the 21st century. 2000, reformer with results. 2004, a safer world and a more hopeful America. 2008, hope and change. 2012, putting the middle class first. 2016, make America great again. 2020, our best days are still ahead. That's the only true one there. Our best days are still ahead, but they're way ahead. our best days are still ahead because Jesus is coming back. And Jesus will vindicate his truth and Jesus will enable his church to endure and succeed and persevere because his love is greater than all the power that is formed against us. That power is being formed against us in the West, which is given to the God of materialism. It's being formed against us in the east, which is power, the lust for power. It's being formed against us in the south because, southern hemisphere, uh, because of animism. It's being formed against us in the northern hemisphere by scientific secularism. There, Christianity is not dominant in any hemisphere or in this country. What hope is there? The only hope The only hope of enduring forces set against us from every direction on the globe is to be loved in Christ, to be held by His love that is more powerful than any weapon formed against it. I get that. Not… Entirely in this text, but in a cross reference to this text. We don't need to take time to look at it, but just write it down. 1 Thessalonians 5 8, in which Paul says, Stay awake, just like this author, just like John says, Stay awake. Stay awake. Don't let the world uh, uh, tempt you into torpor and slumber. Don't try to be unclothed and stand in the clothing of those false garments of protection that are promised to you by the world stay awake by staying awake aware that Christ loves you and that love will guard you he says specifically providing you for providing for you as Paul says the hope of salvation like a helmet when you know that the Father loves you infallibly in Jesus Christ and nothing can separate you from His love sealed to you by the blood of Christ, then that is like a helmet of hope on you to say, It doesn't matter what I lose here, I am guarded to the great day. We've needed helmets in the past couple of years because we've lost our minds. We've needed the helmet of hope. That if I die, if I'm put out, it's Christ is still gonna win. And we need, Paul also says, the breastplate of righteousness, of faithfulness. Not a righteousness that I earn, not a faithfulness that I keep up, but the faithfulness of God to keep me justified into all of eternity. So it doesn't matter who rejects me. It doesn't matter who tries to cancel me or put me out. I am secured in the approval of God. When you know that you're loved, no foe can intimidate you. I read this week in preparation for a Sunday school class about a slave named Josiah Henson, born a slave in Maryland, taught all of his life that he was nothing and deserved the slavery that he was in. He was born, as, as Harriet Beecher Stowe said, a slave in effect, in a heathen land and under a heathen master. But one day, he heard the gospel. Someone was preaching to him this truth, the Son of God died for all. He died for the bond, the poor, and the Negro in his chains. He says, I stood and heard it. It touched my heart and I cried out, I wonder if Jesus Christ died for me. But then I was overwhelmed that a poor, despised and abused creature like me, deemed by others fit for nothing but unrequited toil, deemed for nothing but mental and bodily degradation, was known and loved by Jesus Christ himself. Oh, the blessedness and sweetness of feeling that I was loved. I would have died that moment with joy and kept repeating to myself the compassionate Savior about whom I have heard. The compassionate Savior about whom I have heard loves me. You know what that did for Josiah Henson? It empowered him to stand up and escape slavery. It empowered him when he reached his freedom to return and help others escape. What force is powerful enough to stand against the propaganda of falsehood even to the point of saying, you are nothing, the truth of Christ? What force is powerful enough to turn back the powers of darkness, to endure through the powers of darkness, to resist them and to change the systems of this world. It is the love of Christ. If the gospel of Christ is yours, you have those weapons, those hell-seeking missiles that take on the propaganda of the devil and the power of the devil. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, thank you for the power of the gospel. May we be refreshed by it, those who know Christ already, and refreshed especially in this supper, and may we be converted by it, those who have been passive toward it, or even rebels. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.